In the following, we will look at the Chinese economy prior to 1949. The overarching motivating question is the following. Why did the onset of rapid intensive economic growth occur relatively late in China? So among the late industrializers, why was China so late to industrialize after Britain was the first country to industrialize and its other Western European neighbors quickly followed and subsequently other countries including Japan and Korea quickly caught up with those first in the pack of industrializing countries. So the overarching question is, why is it the case that China was relatively slow to pick up industrialization, although other developing countries were able to quickly catch up with Britain and Western Europe after they industrialized? This is the overall motivating question for this episode. To start to give an answer to this question, one can say first that Western European economies were able to quickly follow, were immediate followers to Britain because they had similar backgrounds, settings, as well as initial conditions compared with the English economy. So the Western European neighbors of Britain had a high relative wage rental rate as well as similar initial conditions relating to their capital to labor ratios and fact endowments that allowed them to adopt the technology relatively quickly after Britain industrialized. And this relates to the economics of technology argument where countries that are similar in initial conditions can quickly adopt the technology of the frontier and then quickly, if you like, catch up with the first country. That is, Western European countries are catching up to Britain. Now, for countries that have vastly different initial conditions in terms of their relative wage rental rate as well as capital labor ratios, this type of growth is not easy or immediately possible. That is because, as we have examined previously via the economics of technology, countries with a low wage rental rate find that the technology is not really suitable in the sense that there is no microeconomic incentive nudging entrepreneurs and businesses and firms in the economy by themselves to adopt this frontier technology that would allow the country possibly to achieve rapid economic growth via industrialization. So the countries that faced very, very different initial conditions relative to Britain as well as its Western European neighbors 
instead used a model called the developmental state to achieve rapid catch-up and industrialization following the industrialization in the so-called first pack or the first world contained by Britain as well as its Western European neighbors. The question that we are addressing in this episode of why China was so relatively slow to pick up on industrialization and development as a catch-up country is related to and builds on, but nonetheless is distinct and different from the question that we have addressed in previous episodes. And that previous question was why Britain and not the Yangtze Delta area in China was the locus of the Industrial Revolution. These questions are different and distinct and should be kept firmly separate in the mind when we are talking about the second question about the relatively slow take-up of industrialization and development in China. In the following, we will look at an explanation for the second question that is couched and follows in the tradition of institutional economics. The answer to that question that is provided by Brandt, Ma, Rorsky, as well as authors such as Haggard and related authors, is that the institutional features of the traditional pre-modern Chinese economy can explain why China was relatively slow to escape its high-level equilibrium trap, why, in other words, China was unable to quickly and immediately follow industrialization first movers such as Britain, Western Europe, as well as the quickly catch-up countries, cases such as Korea and Japan. A word here to put this institutional explanation that we will look at in the following into context is to say that the institutional school is a school of what can be termed an idealistic explanation of economic history. Idealistic here does not refer to the sense of perfect, but rather it refers to idealistic as opposed to materialistic explanation of economic history. In contrast to idealistic explanations of economic history, which relates to the causal effect of ideas, of thoughts, of culture, the materialistic explanation of history looks at factors such as the wage-rental ratio, if you like, the price of factors, factors, factor supply, factor endowments, the amount of capital and labor a country has available, its geography, and so on. In most cases, 
most authors use a combination of both idealistic and materialistic explanations for economic change. Nonetheless, one can group certain authors as tending towards more idealistic or more materialistic explanations of history. For instance, Brandt, Ma and Rorsky, as well as Haggard and the developmental state approaches to economic history could be described as more idealistic explanations of economic history relative to authors and scholars such as Pomerantz and Allen, which emphasize, relatively speaking, more materialistic elements in their hypothesis about economic change and the onset of modern economic growth. Nonetheless, uh, it would be false to classify either of these authors or sets of authors as being purely materialistic or purely idealistic explanations of economic history. We can further divide the idealistic school of economic history that emphasizes the power of ideas, cultures and institutions into two camps. On the one hand, we have scholars that emphasize that modern economic growth requires institutions that limit the power of the state. If you have no institutions that limit and circumscribe the power of the state, the state can be predatory, it can take over the private sector, businesses, entrepreneurs and discourage entrepreneurship and private initiative. This first camp within the idealistic school of economic history sometimes is described as the institutionalist school the classical institutionalist school or the new institutionalist school and it borrows heavy, heavily from the analysis of political scientists. This first camp emphasizes institutions that limit the power of the state, which includes things such as the rule of law, private property rights, as well as more formal political institutions such as a modern written constitution. This first camp can be contrasted with a second camp within the idealistic school of economic history, which emphasizes the role of institutions that are important for economic growth, but instead of underlining or highlighting institutions that are necessary for limiting the role of the state, this second camp is suggesting that institutions also need to be in place in order to check, limit and circumscribe the power of businesses and private interests as well as certain elites that could capture the state. This second camp is, for example, the developmental state uh, school of thought. The developmental state, state school of thought emphasizes, according to Haggard, quote, the autonomy or insulation of the government from rent-seeking private enter 
enterprises or private interests, unquote. Therefore, in the following discussion, when we look at different explanations of how the traditional Chinese economy's institutional features limit its ability to quickly adopt the latest technology and industrialize, these type of institutional list explanations fall under the category of idealistic explanations of history and in the literature uh, you can keep firmly in mind the distinction between the role of institutions of whether or not they are falling into the first or the second camp of the idealistic school. The first camp again emphasizes that certain institutions are necessary to limit the power of the state and this will allow a country to grow and if these kind of institutions are not in place such as rule of law, private property and uh, modern constitution and so on, if these are not in place then this will limit the ability of the economy to grow. And you need to distinguish this type of institutionalist idealistic explanation of economic growth from the second type of institutionalist explanation that is typified by the development of state which suggests that institutions are necessary to limit also the power of private interests and private enterprises as well as businesses as well as rent-seeking or corruption-seeking type of groups inside the economy. To further distinguish these different types of schools of thought within the idealistic tradition of economic explanation, one can first say that certain types of scholars that are emphasizing the power of culture or religion could be described as the old or perhaps traditional institutionalist school of economics. The so-called new institutionalist school, as mentioned a few minutes ago, emphasizes the rule of law, private property rights, as well as modern constitutions and so on. So how does this developmental state approach and the development state institutionalist school differ? It differs in the sense that it suggests that the economic mechanisms underpinning economic growth that need to be overcome by institutions that limit private interests and limit rent-seeking private interests are things that the market and private businesses alone are unable to solve. Whereas the first camp, the new institutionist school, presumes that once the rule of law, private property rights, modern constitution is in place, the interest of the market will work itself out in in such a fashion such as modern economic growth can be achieved. The second camp, the developmental state school, begs to differ. It suggests that there are certain 
underpinning economic mechanisms at work in certain economies, not in all, that suggests that the private market, if left to its own devices after these institutions such as rule of law, private property rights and so on have been established, might not be, in, be able to achieve modern economic growth. And these economic causes relate to market failures, number one, externalities, number two, and number three, increasing returns to scale as well as natural monopolies. So the developmental state school of thought is suggesting that the institutions are not just necessary to protect private businesses from interference by the state, but rather if private businesses were left solely to their own devices via rule of law, secure property rights, modern constitution and so on, would not be able in all instances, in all countries, in all settings, achieve modern economic growth and this is the contribution of the developmental state school of thought that goes beyond very orthodox classical suggestions that the rule of law private property rights a modern constitution is all that is necessary to achieve the type of modern economic growth that we see in the 19th and the 20th century. Another way to look at this distinction of the contribution of the developmental state school of thought is that the state plays quite a different role in the growth process in these late developing countries relative to, for instance, the first movers. Specifically, Haggard is suggesting that the development state school of thought is suggesting that, quote, the state is substituting for the weakness of private institutions, unquote. In other words, they are suggesting, the authors such as Haggard and co-authors, that the state should adopt and needs to adopt certain policies, including protectionism as well as targeted industrial policy as well as sectoral allocation of resources, as well as strategic use of the financial system, in order to avoid a unfavorable position in the international division of labor. So Haggard suggests that the important features of the development of state idea is that the state can first mobilize savings and investments, second influence the sectoral allocation of resources and this sectoral allocation of resources is achieved via, thirdly, planning, trade and industrial policies as well as the strategic use of the financial system. In other words, the distinction between the development of state institutional school compared with the first camp, the more traditional orthodox institutional school, becomes very clear indeed. Left to their own devices, economies could develop according to existing static comparative advantage as 
entrepreneurs and businesses and the market are following the microeconomic incentives that they are facing on the ground, the economy would, based on the classical trade models, specialize in its comparative advantage. And there's different ways in which a country can be explained to have a comparative advantage. And left to their own devices, the the market, therefore, the economy, would assume specialization in a good. However, the development of state approach suggests that some specializations are better than others. High-tech, capital-intensive specializations are better than others because they lead to knowledge spillovers and learning such that there could be productivity growth in the medium to long run from having a different type, a higher type of comparative advantage. And this relates to the idea of comparative advantage not just being static and existent according to the current capital to labor ratio and the wage rental ratio that the country is facing, but rather that the comparative advantage is described as a dynamic element of the economy, namely that a comparative advantage of an economy can be changed rather than being fixed. And the development of the state approach suggests that instead of focusing on static efficiency, which is short-run and short-sighted, the development state, if they have the vision, if the leaders of the country and the managers of the country have a vision, can adopt a developmental approach to the economy that, elite, that achieves a dynamic efficiency, so long-run dynamic efficiency. The following is a preview of the argument how exactly institutions can be used to explain both the extensive economic growth of the traditional Chinese economy and then second the lack of intensive economic growth and thirdly the late onset of rapid intensive economic growth of the Chinese economy after other countries have already industrialized. First we start with a preview of the GDP and demographic numbers of the Chinese economy and find that it was able to achieve a high stable level of per capita GDP growth despite huge population growth. How was this possible? We look at the Song era established institutions of the traditional Chinese economy and this could explain the high extensive growth. But there was no secondly intensive growth and partly this can be explained by both economics of technology and institutions. And the economics of technology argument suggests that there is no incentive uh, in an economy that has a low, relatively low wage to rental rate for it to adopt 
capital intensive technology. The escape of this resulting high equilibrium trap of low intensive growth but high extensive growth, this escape from this high equilibrium trap was hard even after foreign invasion by the West in China. In other words, there was no immediate adoption of the developmental state model. And this is putting China in very sharp and distinct contrast to Japan. When Commodore Perry and the ships of the U US arrived in Japan, at ports in Japan, Japan quickly was able to adopt a developmental state type of reform and attitude in the form of the Meiji Restoration that overcame its backwardness. However, in China, even despite foreign invasion uh, around the start of the First Opium War and following, there nonetheless was still a problem for the Chinese economy to escape from its traditional structure. And the institutional school, by its name already suggesting, is putting forward institutionals, institutionalist arguments for why China was so late or so hard to escape its high equilibrium uh, trap. And that relates to, in essence, limited state capacity and that led to limited amount of fiscal capacity that is raising uh, taxes by the state. And as a result of this limited state capacity, the internal and external weakness of the imperial regime and imperial household of the traditional Chinese economy grows. Internal rebellions, strife, instability, as well as external weaknesses grows, as manifested in the domestic rebellions, civil strife, as well as external invasions. And the institutions that allowed China to achieve extensive economic growth despite a huge population growth while maintaining stable living standards was a set of institutions that allowed China to overcome certain lack of modern institutions that the new institutionalists deem necessary for modern economic growth. These institutions, however, that China had in its traditional economy were so entrenched and were resisting change even after foreign invasion that their interests were aligned with maintaining the imperial household and resisting any change. However, eventually the war, First World War, Second World War, as well as the intervening civil war, were seemingly sufficient shocks to create the conditions for radical change in China that endowed the new Chinese state under the PRC, the People's Republic of China, with sufficient state capacity to adopt a developmental state approach to radical economic reform. And it suggests that the conditions of war and national emergency were sufficient shocks 
that would allow the state that previously was entrenched with different interests from mercantilistic interests, uh, gentry interests, local magistrate interests, intellectual interests, uh, business interests, guilds interests and so on, that all were propping up the old system. These were over the hundred years starting with the First Opium War uh, gradually removed in a very painful process of uh, domestic instability in China. And this process of first describing the features of the traditional Chinese economy, the institutions that allowed it to achieve extensive economic growth without allowing for raises in per capita GDP, and then the eventual constraint these institutions put on and on China and preventing China from adopting immediately the developmental state approach as Japan did in the, if you like, case of Meiji restoration, will be explained in the following. As we speak about the traditional Chinese economy, it would be useful to characterize its essential features. And in the following, the discussion builds heavily on Brandt, Ma and Rosky in their article in the Journal of Economic Literature. Here, the Song era economy, 1960 to 1279, is seen as the foundation of traditional pre-modern China and its traditional economy. These Song era institutions are deemed to be the essential features that were more or less consistent existing after the turn of the first millennium, around 1960s and after. And these are counted to the number of eight by Brandma and Roski. So there's eight uh, essential features uh, that they characterize the traditional Chinese economy by. The first being consolidation of political control in the emperor's hands. That is political centralization. Second, a tax system based on registration and assessment of privately held land. Third, a merit-based civil service staffed by common people rather than aristocrats or other entrenched elites. Fourth, the use of written examinations to create a set of candidates for official posts. And all of these features above are relating to the mandarinet of official bureaucracy as well as the elements of a so-called bureaucratic state in Max Weber's sense. It's an ideal type that Max Weber, the sociologist, has characterized the bureaucratic state by. Fifth, the fifth element of the Song era economy is a shift to an agricultural regime based on smallholder ownership and tenancy. Six, 
the expansion of markets for commodities and factors, seventh, the penetration of money in commercial exchange, and eighth, extensive development of private commerce. These type of features we have seen in the discussion and the description by Pomeranz of the traditional Chinese economy that were quite um, similar in some essential respects with the most advanced parts of Western Europe in a sense of having commercialized agriculture and extensive commerce, markets, as well as transport and the Song era economy was perhaps uh, special because the political centralization uh, was quite advanced and the geographical size of uh, China under uh, central control was extremely extensive. Now we come to talk about some features of the traditional Chinese economy in terms of demographics and GDP, in terms of output and population growth. The Hai Qing from 1660 to 1796 pushed China to its largest geographical size and that is equivalent to the borders of the modern People's Republic of China. And population growth was very high. The annual growth rate of population is 0.4% per year during that high Qing period. Qing as in Q-I-N-G and more specifically numbers on population growth are that in 1400 the population grew from 70 million to 310 million in 1794 and then 400 million in 1850 and eventually 500 million half a billion in 1930. In other words the population grew around four to five hundred percent in the course of around 400 years. This high population growth was combined with stable long-run living standards and that is a remarkable economic achievement at that time. In other words, output in the traditional Chinese economy was keeping pace with population such as the output per head remains stable or in other words there's no downward trend in per capita consumption in household consumption and one can then ask how was this possible how was this able to be achieved by the Chinese economy despite naturally limited resources uh, including restricted amounts of land in other words what explains the extensive margin economic growth while at the same time uh, there no being intensive economic growth? To answer this, we have to remind ourselves that the pre-modern Chinese economy is practically a agriculturally dominated economy, so a heavily agriculturally influenced economy. Therefore, if we want to explain output changes, we have to look at how 
agriculture and the agriculture and economy functions in China. Handicraft production at that time was less important, although it existed. And therefore, we can focus instead of uh, on certain amounts of uh, proto-industry, which is handicraft production. Instead of that, we look at purely uh, agricultural and agricultural productivity growth and changes in the agricultural economy to explain the extensive economic growth in China. So as we mentioned previously, the Chinese agricultural economy composed of many small family farms and 80% of acreage was used for grain production. Brandma and Roski are suggesting that agricultural output growth is due to two factors, expanded acreage and higher yields. So first regarding expanded acreage, Perkins 1969 suggested that cultivated land more than tripled so the amount of land that is used for agricultural cultivation more than tripled while population growth was such that the uh, number of people quintupled so grew, grew by 500% while cultivated acreage grew by 300% so if population growth is much higher than cultivated area growth the suggestion is that besides extensive margin growth in terms of expanded acreage you need to secondly also have productivity increases in terms of higher yields so the traditional chinese economy was very high in terms of its agricultural output and its use of inputs including the use of selected varieties of seeds use of organic fertilizers as well as sophisticated irrigation networks. And this allowed the output of the Chinese economy to keep pace with population growth, which grew by four to 500%, while cultivated land only, quote unquote, only grew by 300%. So to make up that difference, uh, it came all, the growth came also from productivity increases. And Bozerup in 1965 is suggesting that population growth acts as a mechanism for economic expansion and growth via increased cultivation of labor-intensive crops and greater use of multiple cropping and other labor-using methods. And in essence, this characterized the Chinese, uh, if you like, pre-modern economy as an economy that was high in terms of agricultural product, but we need to be more specific. It was a high average product per unit of land, a high average product output, if you like, of unit per land, but not a high average product per unit of labor. In other words, the productivity per head, per farmer or per worker in the agriculture sector was relatively low and therefore the compensation and the income by those farmers was also low. In other words, the per capita income was relatively low, despite increases in the average product per unit of land, which suggests that this is one way in which there was no 
increase in intensive economic growth that would have raised the income per person. Besides this, high agricultural productivity explaining the high extensive GDP growth without intensive growth, so it addresses the question of Elvin about the mechanism underlying the high equilibrium trap. There were institutions that allowed the population to grow despite strains on resources and not leading to any diminishing returns to factor inputs. And these institutions relate to the features of the traditional economy that were mentioned uh, above, plus uh, some other new ones. So they include commerce and markets that have been mentioned previously. So the commercialized countryside allowed the allowed for the specialization and the division of labor, labor, as well as the connection of markets that uh, allowed for temporary relief of shortages or surplus in either inputs or outputs. And these deepening markets for commodities as well as uh, factors such as land and labor that produce these commodities allowed the economy to continue to grow. Aside from that, other factors of and other institutions of the traditional economy were the water transport system, including the Grand Canal, the Hanko Wuhan River port, as well as other sophisticated institutions mentioned previously, not just the use of money, uh, also large formal organizations, as well as uh, commercial procedures that were quite advanced, such as use of written contracts and use of middlemen and intermediaries, rather than having economic exchange take place via, if you like, arm's length and instantaneous type of exchanges, as well as some kind of legal and custom institutions, including courts, merchants, association, guilds, and some form of a banking system that allowed for transfer of funds uh, across the nation, including Qian Zhuang, native banks that were quite local in nature, but also Shanxi style banks that had more geographical reach. In addition to this, there were other financial institutions such as local currency exchanges, pawn shops, uh, where people could pawn certain things in order to get a loan, as well as personal loans and other informal customs of finance. Nonetheless, uh, the signs of strain and weaknesses were showing in this traditional type of financial market architecture in that transaction costs were high, frictions were high, and the interest costs or the interest rates faced by borrowers were also high. In addition, there was little financial market integration because the interest rates and in other words, borrowing costs were varying across different uh, geographies inside the country. Other features that helped to maintain extensive growth and kept living standards stable were, as mentioned previously, competitive markets, such as for coal, iron, textile, 
industry and so on where you had a lot of exit and entry in the industry and competitive markets also for factor inputs including labor with a lot of social and geographical mobility of people the if you like uh, penultimate characteristic of the set of institutions that helped uh, the extensive growth but uh, without intensive growth was small-scale bottom-heavy economy uh, that characterized the, the if you like the, the Chinese economy and it can be said that to be described by household based style economic production where households focused on vertical specialization connected by markets rather than horizontal specialization nonetheless again here there's also some strain and weaknesses showing in the traditional uh, Chinese economy where the lack of standardization and a lack of reliably high quality according to Brandt, Ma and Drosky did not allow China to compete or survive competition from Japan and India in for instance the case of the tea business so in the international context suggests that China was the Chinese economy was not competitive furthermore there was no capital accumulation in large enterprises partly due to the economics of technology arguments we have looked at earlier as uh, labor intensive small-scale dispersed households were not making it microeconomically efficient for large enterprises via capital accumulation to emerge and the final point that describes the traditional Chinese economy that would explain the lack of intensive economic growth and this is something we have looked at earlier also in the discussion with Pomerance in the Great Divergence is low urban population density uh, relative to early modern Europe that led to relatively low wages especially in the type of regions in China that could be described as urban centers but they were cluster of clusters of market towns uh, around rivers and um, if you like geographically mobile, uh, mobile or accessible areas rather than um, large-scale cities as in the case in Europe with London or Amsterdam The result of the traditional Chinese economy was relative high extensive growth but limited intensive growth. And if we look at the statistics by Angus Madison in his 2001 book The World Economy, it suggests that the GDP per capita was roughly constant since the 1500s until around the invasion of the West in the first Opium War. So absolute GDP per capita was very stable until the invasion of the West. And similarly, the relative value of GDP per capita relative to the world was also relatively stable until 
the 1820s, but it did show some decline starting from the 15 and 1600s, where GDP per capita in China was slowly, very gradually declining below that of the world average. But compared to Western Europe, GDP per capita in China was declining rapidly, starting at least since the 1500s, if not even earlier. Nonetheless, uh, GDP per, if you like, not per capita, but an absolute level, an absolute total level, continued to rise dramatically uh, up until the 1820s. And this absolute GDP level was also matched in terms of its relative size to the rest of the world. So if we ask what is the share of the Chinese economy as a share of the world, in the year 1000, the Chinese economy made up about 23% of the world economy. And this share rose to 25% in the 1500s to 29% in the 1600s, then with a slight dip in the 1700s, then continued to increase until around 33% at the 1820s. So it suggests that a few decades before the invasion uh, of China by the West, the Western forces, Chi the Chinese economy made up one-third of the world economy, which is a remarkable feat of achievement in terms of uh, economic uh, growth. But this extensive growth, again, as we mentioned previously, did not come at the intensive level also. So the consumption per head, the income per head was stable. And this describes what Needham has called a homeostasis, a system that is maintaining its living standard at a stable level without actually increasing in terms of the prosperity per head. As a summary of the discussion centered around the Great Divergence that we have looked at earlier, we can ask what explains China's lack of intensive growth. We have explained China's extensive growth above, and now we can address and review our arguments that have been proffered by Pomerance and others, as well as Ellen, for the lack of intensive growth. And if you recall, Pomerance is suggesting that China and Europe faced uh, binding, binding land constraints. And Pomerance is suggesting in the California school that England was able to overcome these land constraints via colonies and imperialism via access to land intensive products, as well as outlets for its markets, plus access to a geographical accident that is coal at home. And the economics of technology suggests that China's relative economic decline in terms of per capita GDP, not keeping up its relative per capita GDP relative to the most advanced regions to, to the rest of the world. So we look at GDP 
and break it down into per capita GDP and then we look at further breakdown into relative per capita GDP which relates the per capita GDP in a country or region to another region and that is what we can talk about the relative decline of the Chinese economy when looked at a level of per capita GDP. We have seen that in terms of absolute GDP relative if you like relatively to the rest of the world China was tremendously growing from 22-23% to 33% of the world economy but in terms of per head GDP which is the focus of economic growth and is one of the measures of economic well-being far away from the only one of course but uh, that is uh, the concern uh, of economic historians and developmental uh, economists and this lack of intensive growth has been uh, if you like analyzed via the economics of technology Brandma and Rorsky further break this economics of technology down into the demand for technology and the supply of technology so to recap uh, the factor uh, prices uh, determine the demand for technology so if you have high population growth uh, it leads to a decline in the wage rental ratio especially if the population growth is not uh, leading to more urban centers or densely populated areas which could increase the wage rate and the the, these kind of developments led to the adoption of labor using techniques and labor absorbing institutions, according to Brandma and Rorsky, such that uh, the labor that was uh, generated by high population growth uh, was absorbed and there was no surplus left for labor saving and capital using technologies. That is the demand side of the economics of technology there was in that sense no demand from entrepreneurs and businesses and or farmers a managerial who, who might have had managerial uh, outlook to adopt and apply and tinker with those capital intensive innovations aside from the demand side uh, of the argument of economics of technology we can look at the supply side of the economics of technology and this brand Ma and Rorsky are breaking down into the uh, if you like supply of science and learning and technology and they suggest that technology was not available due to a change in attitudes towards science and learning it is uh, suggested by them that um, the Confucianist uh, rigidity or attitude towards science and learning at that time um, was not conducive to so-called modern science. That of course is disputed, um, but uh, it is one argument put forward by Brand Ma and Rorsky. Uh, and nonetheless, this argument that China was hampered by a lack of availability of technology and science is um, criticized by for example Allen. Allen suggests that the supply of basic science and technology was not the constraint holding back China in terms of intensive economic growth 
uh, and it suggests, quote, new scientific findings played only a modest role in Europe's advance, unquote, suggesting that also it would not play a big role in China. Um, so the technology was there, the scientific, the scientific uh, attitudes and scientific advancements and results were there, but they were not applied due to the lack of demand for technology. So supply and demand need to work together and the economics of technology talks a lot about the demand side for technology, suggesting that the supply of technology, at least in the first instance, in the first era of or the first wave of industrialization, was not a problem. Mokir, M-O-K-Y-R, um, that scholar argues that uh, the supply side of technology and science did become a problem later with the second and third wave of industrialization where uh, advancements in basic science based on modern scientific methods, experimentation and verifiable experiments and replication of results were uh, absolutely essential for uh, the second and third wave of industrialization. Having characterized the main elements of the traditional Chinese economy in terms of number one, how it was able to achieve extensive economic growth, and number two, why it was unable to achieve intensive economic growth, we can move on to explain the third question of the way in which institutions of that economy limited its ability to adopt technology or reform itself even after it was being attacked from uh, both the inside as well as from the outside. Before we come to this, an important element that needs to be considered is the international dimension of the Chinese economy as well, not just the domestic national dimension. And here we find that China, according to Brandma and Roski, had a surplus, a net export surplus, consisting of tea, silk, porcelain and other products. However, that international if you like, amount of trade was relatively small, although exports were larger than imports. And the trade was not just small, but mostly intra- Asian in terms of being centered around the different Asian economies uh, prior to the 1800s and it suggests a quite limited amount of openness of the economy and you can measure this in terms of the trade ratio that is you add imports add exports and divided by GDP and that was relatively small uh, around 1% or less than 1% of GDP. In other words, uh, international trade uh, was an insignificant factor in the Chinese economy and had very little impact on Chinese domestic prices. And as Brand, Ma and Roski are arguing, quote, largely confined to coastal cities and border regions in China and periodically restricted by the state, uh, most of this trade was intra-Asian, with China chipping 
manufacturers, that is porcelain and silk, by sea to Southeast Asia and tea over land to Central Asia, while importing timber, spices and monetary metals by sea and horses from Central Asia. And that, if you like, is suggesting that the Chinese economy was very limited in its international linkages to the rest of the world, especially outside of Asia, which, of course, was forcefully uh, disrupted and changed by the arrival of the Western imperial troops and ships, as well as the merchants. And that erupted eventually in the First Opium War. Having discussed how institutions allowed for extensive economic growth but did not really contribute to intensive economic growth, we look at further how the sets of other institutions created uh, further problems that did not allow the Chinese not just to come up with the Industrial Revolution in the first place uh, and instead uh, that trophy being taken by the British economy and then subsequently the followers in Western Europe. But in addition, uh, these institutions not just limited this uh, intensive economic growth taking off, but also delayed the onset uh, of it. And this relates to the role of uh, fiscal capacity that Brandt, Ma and Roski stress quite significantly, which is what we will discuss now. And if you like, this is one of the central points in which the lack of fiscal capacity signifies lack of state capacity. And that again is a essential critical lever explaining why China was unable to immediately adopt the developmental state model and reform itself, such as the Meiji restoration, but with Chinese characteristics, um, after the external invasion via the Western powers. So to start with, Brandma and Rosky, when they talk about limited fiscal capacity and lack of state capacity, they are suggesting that the Qing government was too small for the population, for it to be an effective state. As the population was growing rapidly, the uh, fiscal revenue should have kept up in percentage terms, but uh, there was a fiscal crisis. There was a lack of revenue as a percent of GDP, which fell from a percentage peak in the high Qing of around 8% in the early 1700s to below 3% as a percent of GDP. So fiscal crisis is measured by the percent of GDP that the state is taking in as revenue. The small state administration uh, therefore limits the capacity of the state to carry out essential functions which we will talk about in a second. And it then uh, led to the delegation of taxation and justice and public order to local officials, 
officials who needed to collaborate with local power holders in the absence of a strong fiscus. The collection of resources by these local power holders um, was large, so these lo local power holders collected quite an amount of uh, revenue, but little of that uh, reached the center, the political center. The result was a provision of uh, public goods that declined rapidly in quality and quantity. And Brandmar and Rorsky are suggesting that the fiscal crisis uh, that is due to the lack of state capacity can be seen in the decline in food reserves in granaries where uh, certain reserves are kept for national emergencies or war, droughts, uh, famines, natural disasters. Second, uh, irrigation uh, systems, dikes, canals deteriorated in quality and we know that water transport and uh, water irrigation was an essential feature of the Chinese economy because it did not have good land transport. And thirdly, domestic security declined uh, in terms of roving bands and uh, violence and there was a tragedy of the commons where farmers use wetlands and lakes uh, and overuse it and that leads to floods and droughts and these in turn lead to famines and poverty and this leads to in total domestic insecurity and domestic instability and this is later evinced by the uh, Taiping rebellion which is one of the most bloodiest um, civil wars according to some estimates in world history now, why does taxation and fiscal capacity matter? The state taxes to ensure internal stability, that is by means of public goods provision. And the state needs to collect taxes to ensure external security, that is defense from barbarians, inva uh, invaders and so on. And as mentioned previously, the uh, element of the Chinese uh, traditional economy in terms of taxation was a fiscal system centered on the taxation of privately owned land. Privately owned land here, not necessarily in the sense of the, the Western uh, sense of private property, but uh, perhaps informal or customary uh, property rights that nonetheless were the source of most of taxation in China, in the traditional Chinese economy. And in the 1750s, Brandma and Roski uh, are suggesting more than, than two-thirds, that is 74% uh, of uh, taxation came from land. So that is uh, around three-quarters of taxes came from land, which is a huge proportion. The rest came from, in almost almost equal measure, from salt tax, foreign trade tax, and other taxes. And the state needs taxes for its aims of security, external and internal. And we've seen that it comes mostly from land taxes. Now, how does the state raise taxes? It can increase or decrease the rate of tax collection, 
that is the percentage it takes from certain transactions or in the case of land taxation the tax rate on land and the number of tax collectors or bureaucrats that it um, has in order to raise taxes. But the number of tax collectors and bureaucrats uh, also increases government expenditure via wage bills, tax offices and so on. So that means that there's some kind of trade-off in increasing the number of tax collectors. And in addition uh, with the tax rate, uh, there's this uh, common problem in taxation that uh, it might not be a uh, linear uh, relationship between the tax rate and the tax revenue and that is referred to as the Laffer curve L-A-F-F-E-R L-A-F-F-E-R Laffer curve which suggests that the tax rate has a certain concave relationship to total tax revenue. So uh, just to re-emphasize, the tax rate uh, has a concave relationship with the uh, total tax revenue. Uh, in other words, uh, when the tax rate goes up, the total tax revenue goes up, but at some point it hits a high point and if you go above a certain tax rate, uh, the total tax revenue collected falls via means of evasion or substitution um, from the, the tax base, uh, let's say labor or land, into other uh, assets or other uh, means of generating the income. And Brandmar and Rorsky are suggesting that uh, the state has these aims to raise taxes, it has these instruments to raise taxes, and Nonetheless, there is some kind of constraint on this maximization problem for the emperor or the state, which is you want to increase net fiscal revenue to meet your aims of taxation, but at the same time letting households have enough after-tax income for survival and prosperity. But uh, the raising of taxation is not frictionless uh, because as mentioned via the tax rate, there can be some uh, substitution and leakage, but also via the um, principal agent problems that is involved via tax collectors or bureaucrats or cooperation with local officials necessary um, in the absence of proper institutions that would lead to certain uh, leakage or disappearance of tax collected that would not reach the center. These kind of problems of fiscal capacity, more specifically these frictions that are restraining tax collection in China, uh, can be described as agency costs due to information asymmetries. So some people know more than others in the tax collection process, where a, a low order official could blame low taxes on harvest failure or some bandits rather than the official taking bribes or taking corruption. So that's information asymmetries and that could be asymmetric uh, information, uh, hidden information or hidden action, but also imperfect uh, monitoring. And these kinds of 
agency costs, of course, then are responded to by the center and they establish certain uh, checks uh, that are uh, both internal. There are certain checks on, for instance, the rotation of officials, the restriction that officials should not be serving in their home country or home state or home province or home city where they might have certain networks they can uh, rely upon for for bribery and corruption and so on and these kind of intern checks were meant to prevent uh, corruption and in addition there can be um, external checks where these internal checks actually evolve into uh, outposts of the center where the monitors or the checkers are being checked themselves. So it led to an, a large bureaucracy, according to Branma and Rorsky and the literature they are citing, that spread the number of officials uh, from the state further and further, uh, but without actually being able to raise enough funds such that these officials uh, were uh, incentivized, um, if you like, unwittingly to uh, also be subject to bribery and corruption. And Bram Ma, Ma and Roski are calling these uh, results of this lack of fiscal capacity, uh, if you like, uh, threefold informal ad hoc, uh, ad hoc taxation, informal ad hoc taxation, ad hoc AD HOC. Uh, informal ad hoc, ad hoc taxation, then bureaucratic extraction, uh, and third, elite tax avoidance. And these are some of the, the if you like, the concepts or the framework uh, which to use to understand uh, tax raising and the mechanisms underlying the decline in tax revenue in the traditional Chinese economy and we can then look at the actual fall in fiscal revenue to provide some numbers to and quantify the lack of fiscal capacity and here Brandma and Rorsky are providing some numbers that start with the Song Dynasty and they put an index of 100 to uh, the fiscal revenue in total and they are suggesting that uh, 72 million taels T-A-E-L-S in silver were raised in the Song Dynasty and this dropped from 72 million to 47 million taels in the Ming Dynasty and that falls further uh, to around 36 million tails over the next 600 years, starting from the song uh, to later, from the uh, first millennium, uh, 1200s to then 1800s. And this is remarkable because a fall from 72 million silver tails to 36 is roughly a halving of uh, overall fiscal revenue. And as you remember from above, the population is increasing rapidly uh, by 400, 500%. And you can imagine that if the government revenue is falling by 50%, that this would lead to inevitable uh, public um, 
goods provision problems, internal security problems, as well as uh, lack of proper defense uh, military expenditure for external security. In addition to this overall fall, uh, the per capita tax revenue um, from 1700 to 1850 falls by 50%. And you can also compare the fiscal uh, lack of capacity uh, by computing uh, the per capita tax revenue the state is raising by converting it into number of days an unskilled urban worker has to work in order to pay off the state. This gives you a sense of the not just the nominal value, uh, that is the silver tails, which might not account for so much for inflation, but if you look at the urban worker's wage in real terms, uh, the amount of days a worker has to work to pay off uh, the state in terms of the tax that he or she has to provide, it's two days in China. So a typical unskilled urban worker has to work two days in a year to pay off the the fiscus or the, the state. And that contrasts sharply with England and Netherlands in the 1750s and the late 1800s up until the 20th century where the typical unskilled urban worker is working uh, 10 and up to 20 days, even more than 20 days in the case of uh, Netherlands. And you can see that there's a factor of uh, 10 or 20 by which the tax revenue per capita is differing between England and Netherlands and uh, China. Of course, the tax revenue might be higher if, again, we use Pomeranz's argument about the category error. If you look at the Yangtze Delta era, era, area uh, raising of revenue. Nonetheless, uh, this is giving us a quantification of the problem of fiscal capacity. And the central government, uh, that is one part of the explanation, uh, was focusing on a stable nominal revenue, nominal level of fiscal revenue, rather than focusing on keeping the fiscal revenue in step with population growth. So that might uh, suggest problems with vision and uh, ideology at the level of the economic management uh, in the imperial household that they were not aware or thinking about the uh, case for uh, relative fiscal capacity increasing in step with the size of the population, but rather they were perhaps focused on system maintenance. And there are some economic models that are explaining uh, this focus uh, in a theoretical way, suggesting that if you have a sufficiently long-term outlook and you um, have a certain discount factor, uh, this focus on a very low level of taxation can emerge as a rational equilibrium in uh, a model uh, that could explain uh, the decision by the household, by the imperial household, to tax in uh, this very low level. And 
something that needs to be mentioned when we talk about fiscal revenue. Um, the revenue cannot just come from naturally uh, taxation, but state finance uh, can also come from uh, borrowing, which is uh, done via public debt, uh, government borrowing and public debt raising. And again, on this account, also the uh, Chinese traditional economy was n lacking or had some hampering issues. Um, the, if you like, institution of government borrowing or public debt raising was not very well developed. And Brandmar and Roski are suggesting that um, paper money, uh, although it was pioneered by the Song Dynasty, was phased out due to inflation and mismanagement, and then there was a switch to commodity money. Uh, low denomination copper tokens were used, and they were officially minted, and then there was also uncoined silver and shoes and ingots, sometimes cast by private firms. There was also silver bullion and bullion um, and silver coins imported from uh, other places around the world, including Europe, Americas and Japan. And this variety of copper tokens and uncoined silver and coin silver uh, led to a, a dizzying array of differing and change rates uh, that were also unstable over time. So in other words, uh, there was uh, not a lot of monetary stability and a lack of a financial system, including a public finance system that didn't allow for the state to, if you like, overcome its shortage of fiscal capacity via borrowing. And in any case, the borrowing might not have taken place uh, because of the limited fiscal capacity, they could not allow the state to pay back its debt, even if it was able to raise the funds. And Brahma and Roski are uh, suggesting the following. They are suggesting that, quote, unlike Holland and England, there was no formal market for public debt. And further, the absence of credible financial instruments restrained state capacity and rendered the traditional state prone to fiscal predation or confiscation in times of crisis." Unquote. And instead of de jure, D-E-G-U-R-E, governmental borrowing, uh, Brandma and Roski are suggesting that there is de facto governmental borrowing or extraction in the form of advanced collection of taxes and forced loans for merchants and sale of official titles and positions. This is a very important point and it highlights the link between lack of state capacity, lack of fiscal capacity and then the entrenchment of elite interests and corruption. And that link and that nexus is suggested that the government borrowing is taking the form of de facto borrowing in the sense of advanced collection of taxes, which doesn't lead to a very stable environment for, for farmers and businesses, and then forced loans from merchants, which undermines uh, their uh, confidence and their business environment, as well as sale of official titles and position, which entrances further lead interests and makes radical change very difficult, which is then actually being evinced by how China was unable to sufficiently and quickly respond to the Western invasion, starting with the 
First Opium War. Therefore, the lack of fiscal capacity suggested lack of, fisc uh, of state capacity, and this further then undermined the, the, the system underpinning the traditional Chinese economy. And Bra Brandma and Roski are suggesting that the limited size of the bureaucracy uh, led to a near-static administrative structure that didn't keep up with population growth. And this then led to higher administrative burden uh, because the higher population growth required a higher um, number of officials. And in the absence of fiscal capacity increasing, the center required more cooperation with local officials uh, because they were not being paid sufficiently um, to compensate for their costs and outlays uh, these local officials and magistrates then were cooperating with local gentries and elites to carry out uh, the taxation uh, but there was a lot of siphoning off going on at the same time and that led to uh, conflict between the center and uh, the the regional areas in China. And Brandma and Roski are suggesting that uh, this in total was a stable long-run equilibrium. Uh, in the absence of any external shock, it was mutual, mutually enforcing and reinforcing, and it constrained the onset of modern economic growth um, and did not allow a very immediate adoption of development of state style reforms as the Japanese were able to do under the Meiji system and that perhaps is um, partly also due to the size of the Chinese economy as these coordination costs, these agency costs, these frictions are probably much larger in a continental sized economy such as China's and we have discussed how the institution of the traditional Chinese economy and centralization of power, political unity, cultural homogeneity and its integrated framework of markets and commerce and transport allowed it to remain uh, politically unified and this size um, matters in the sense that it also was not just a, a benefit but also a curse. Um, later in the 20th uh, century, size uh, could be a beneficial factor uh, when we talk about the uh, big push and economies of scale, especially in a globalized economy, where if you have sufficiently economies of scale, you could have a lot of comparative advantage in many uh, sectors and industries that allows you to grow perhaps much more quickly and sustain that growth that than otherwise would be possible in a perhaps smaller economy uh, in terms of the number of people as well as the land mass available such as Japan's or Korea's compared with China. But this is uh, the conclusion of the discussion of the limited fiscal capacity and limited state capacity that Brandma and Roski are suggesting is holding back the uh, Chinese economy from adopting 
radical reform and in the following we look at some empirical practical examples of how the low state capacity and fiscal capacity actually led to a lot of resistance to change uh, inside the Chinese economy even after it was rattled from outside.